Welcome to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. Before we get started with this week's interview, I wanted to say a quick thank you to all those that have subscribed, listened to and shared the episodes. If you get a chance, please take a few minutes to leave a review and comment on iTunes. It will help get the episodes to as many teachers as possible. Professor Jane Burns is an international expert in mental health and well-being, suicide prevention, digital transformation and integrated models of care. Her groundbreaking work with Together AI uses machine learning so that parents and kids can identify and understand their emotions and overcome challenges together. She is the author of over 100 papers and policy reports. She is the thinker-in-residence for the Western Australian Commission for Children and Young People. She's an international keynote speaker. She was the winner of the Social Enterprise 2015 Australian Financial Review and Westpac Group of the 100 Women of Influence and a Victorian finalist in 2012 and 2017 for the Telstra Business Women's Awards. In our interview, we talked about how to create psychologically safe workplaces, the importance of mental well-being, and how to use machine learning to help you and your kids identify their emotions. I was left hugely impacted by our discussion, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I do. Professor Jane Burns, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's lovely to chat to you. It's lovely to be here, Matthew. Where uh, whereabouts are you phoning in from? Phoning in from Melbourne, sunny Melbourne today. Lovely. Is it sunny in Melbourne today? It is sunny. I've just been for a walk around the Bot Gardens with a girlfriend, which is beautiful. Lovely, lovely. Melbourne, um, as I mentioned before uh, we hit record, has a real... I mean, I love Melbourne. I just love it. I love the coffee shops. I love the, um, the, the graffiti on the walls in the city. I love that you can walk down um, an alleyway and you're not sure what's happening, but you could possibly get the best dumplings of your life, which is really, really lovely. So it's such a beautiful, um, a, a beautiful city. And it's, you guys have had a pretty rough, rough yeah. time over the last couple of years. Look, it is a magnificent city and it's been terribly hard hit by the pandemic and I, I do hope it comes back to life, which I'm sure it will because it's such a vibrant city. But um, you know, the number of shops that have been shut, the small businesses that are struggling, hospitality is doing it tough, uh, venues are doing it tough. You know, mum and dads are doing it tough with their businesses. So yeah. you know, it's challenging, and it's um, you know, it's a beautiful day today, and everyone's out and about. But it's been a tough two years, that's Gosh. for sure. And we will get into some of your amazing work later. It's obviously uh, focusing on well-being, um, but how's your well-being doing? How are you? How are you going? Well, it's it's funny. Girlfriend asked exactly that today, and I said oh. I'm probably the best I've been. Um, I'm loving my work, which yeah. is great. Um, I'm loving the balance that I've got with now uh, two, almost two teenagers and a, a, a an eleven year old, and uh, yeah, just sort of you know it's. It's been tough, but um, I think staying connected to family and friends. I've just been home back to South Australia to catch up with my mum and dad, uh, which has been lovely. And I've just been reconnecting with all the friends that I haven't been able to see for the two years. So I'm feeling pretty good. Great. It's good to know. And um, the second most important question uh, of the interview, uh, what's your uh, what's your coffee order? 
<laughs> well, today I had an almond mocha, but it's usually an almond latte. Okay, interesting. Uh, and is there an item that is still on your bucket list? Look, I, I've got a bucket list book, which a girlfriend, Paula Robinson, wow, that's gave. interesting. And I, I got it out and had a look. And my number one thing was um, to hear my son talk. Uh, he's 15 wow. nonverbal. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but that's on the bucket list. But then I sort of look at it and go, well, if that's not going to happen, what else? Um, and I'd love to go, you know, have a holiday in the Maldives or just wow. something beautiful wouldn't, and swim, yeah. swim in the ocean. Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't we all like to just leave the country? That would be lovely. <laughs> um, is there a book that you have read, and it could be within your expertise or it could be more broadly, that has caused you to stop and reconsider everything? Yeah, look, 15 years ago, I went to America. Oh, actually, 16 years now. And um, I sat next to an author called Haynes Johnson, who was uh, the political author for... Um, uh, for the Clintons and he'd written a book called The System and I devoured it and it's all about political lobbying and uh, the health system but it was just an incredible book to read just to understand the machinations of how and why politics work and why you just sometimes just can't get things done. Yeah wow interesting I, I'm frantically writing down all of these recommendations so I'll uh, have to do an online purchase later. Um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, obviously your, your, your family and friends um, don't count in the numbers, uh, who would be there? I, it's such a good question. I, Helen Mirren, I love. I think she's just exceptional. Yeah. Um, Julie Bishop, I think, would be amazing. Um, Julia Gillard would be amazing. Yeah. I've recently on holidays read the autobiography of uh, Demi Moore and I think just fascinating story and just you know, understanding the trials and tribulations of just challenging childhood and life. Um, oh, Oprah Winfrey would be interesting. Oh, wouldn't with you? Virtual. Oprah, if you are listening to this podcast, it would <laughs> be amazing. Uh, but please come to a dinner party. That'd be amazing. And it's so lovely that you have chosen um, such strong, uh, powerful women. I think that's so important. I'm a, I'm a proud dad to two. Uh, to a very opinionated two-year-old and a very stubborn four-year-old. And it's really lovely. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really very aware of uh, surrounding um, my girls with stories of really strong, powerful women. And that sounds like a, an amazing dinner party. So if you had a few extra seats, I might, um, I might send my kids. Well, we'd be interested in having all generations are welcome. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Um, for those people that um, are not familiar with you um, or have potentially been living under a rock. Um, what, was your, uh, what was your upbringing like and how did you get to where you are today? So background industrial working class girl. I grew up in a country town called Port Pirie. It's claim to fame is it's the largest lead smelter in the Southern Hemisphere. You've got to be um, famous for something, don't you? It's, it's well, good. I loved it. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was, uh, it was bike riding and swimming and um, just sort of hanging out with friends. And I had amazing mum and dad and still yeah. do. Um, grew up with my brother uh, and then went to Adelaide to go to university uh, and from there pretty much got into psychology um, which has been the foundation of, of my work over the last 20 years. Wow wow and a, a very long um, a, a very a very interesting career which hopefully we can get into um, a little bit later. It seems very broad is that is my assumption uh, correct. Well, it is, it, and I started as an academic and then very quickly realised I was not cut out to be an academic. So I had the absolute privilege of um, setting up Beyond Blue yeah, back in the day. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. And 
it meant working with industry, it meant working with academics, it meant working with, um, you know, small to medium enterprises, businesses. So it gave me this just eclectic mix of skill set, um, which was hard, uh, but really fascinating. Jeff Kennett was the chair at the time, you know, hard task master, um, big personality, big boss. Um, and I think from there, I just went on to, I suppose, a career that bridges academia, industry um, and entrepreneurship and then got into tech, which I've absolutely loved. And I'm still um, really, really fascinated with both the good and the bad of technologies and how we can get the balance right. Amazing. And we will touch a little later on the amazing work that you're doing with Together AI. It's a, a fascinating, a fascinating resource. I recently downloaded the, the app, so I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts and your ideas. Yeah, I look forward to chatting about that. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing, amazing. And so was there, um, Jane, I'm just wondering, was there a teacher in your life that, that made a big difference? Um, Absolutely. Um, David Nitsky, um, he was my geography teacher. So I absolutely adored him. And I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's research that says if you've got one adult and it doesn't matter, it's not mum and dad, but it, it, you know, it can be a teacher, mm. um, they can have a profound impact on your life. And he was that one teacher. He actually died of cancer when we were in um, doing our uh, year 12. And that then set me on this course of the psychology and the geography mixed together. But when I was doing my honours in psych, um, I wanted to do it in cancer research wow. and wow. met my supervisor at the time, Michael Sawyer. And bizarrely, they were involved in a study called the Port Perry Cohort Study, which looked at the impact of lead exposure on kids' behaviour. They, they convinced me to do the psychological assessments of, of these 11 to 13-year-old kids. So I didn't go into cancer research, but I started, you know, yeah. with, and I mean, he really was a profound, um, incredibly inspirational um, teacher Amazing. that just gave you this love of learning. Amazing. It, it's so wonderful to see... Um, people so many years later light up when they talk about that special teacher in their life it's really oh, look, and without a doubt you know teachers can make such a profound and have such a profound impact on kids like there's it's just such an incredibly powerful um and a, you know an amazing opportunity mm. for, for people to make a difference in people's lives yeah, I remember, and my wife is sick of hearing this story, but I remember there's a teacher um, called Miss Jones. I went to school in a, a very remote part of uh, England, a lovely part called Belper. So it's in Derbyshire in the Midlands and very, uh, very beautiful. But um, I remember at the time my parents were going through a pretty, uh, a pretty awful separation. Um, and I knew that every time I walked into Miss Jones's class, I felt known, I felt valued, I felt cared yeah. for. And I'm looking back, I'm sure she did that for everyone. Uh, but for me, I felt like this was where I could be. And school was a real safe haven and a safe place. And yeah, really, yeah, really. And I think, I think that that feeling that you are safe in a space, particularly if you're a vulnerable kid or you've got mm. stuff going on in your life, that one safe space can make such a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I think it's so important. And, and if I could be a... Um, a small measure of what Miss Jones was to me to other students. I think my job is uh, my job is complete. Um, and I always I always think about her. Like I think about what would Miss Jones do. Um, I think about my reactions with kids, um, and especially as a as a dad, as I mentioned, to two quite young girls. I think about how would I like someone to interact with my children, um, and just to take the time to be 
interrupted is the wrong word because they're not an interruption. It's what we're there for, but in uh, be open to um, to actually listen and take the time to to engage with our wonderful kids. Because what a privilege! There's nothing more precious than when someone hands over their little ones and uh, uh, gives us the opportunity to help raise them. I think that's an incredible privilege. Oh, look, and the little ones, yeah, absolutely. But I've got a girlfriend, and I mentioned this, who um, teaches um, at a girls' school up in Sydney, and she she has four boys herself. She she treats those girls as if they were her daughters. And I look at it and I think, you know, for my um, yeah. now almost 13-year-old Holly, to have that teacher actually wrapping their arms around them and supporting them through the ups and downs of teenage years, um, yeah. it's just incredible. Yeah, it, it, it's, so, it, it's so, so important. And I think your work um, has always been um, so meaningful, but I think especially now considering the, the turmoil that, that we've been through in the last 18 months, um, would you mind maybe talking a little bit about your work um, in mental health and also what your current work is focused on? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, hats off to teachers, I think, um, I always had ma massive respect for educators. Um, one of the first projects I worked on uh, was called the Gatehouse Project, and it looked at whole school systems. So how do you support student wellbeing, but also importantly, how do you make sure that teachers are supported in their own wellbeing? Because you can't be a great educator and a great supporter of, of students if, if your own wellbeing is struggling. So I'd always been interested in it from a environmental perspective how do you actually create safe supportive environments for teachers and students so that teachers can teach you know education is absolutely profoundly important and you know the job of a teacher is to be an educator but also then how do you ensure that the environment in which people are teaching is safe yeah. um, and it always bugs me a lot when people say oh well you know we should put mental health into the curriculum yes maybe but more importantly we should create safe environments that actually connect people so that you know as you mentioned when you come into the school environment you feel supported you feel that you can go and have a chat to someone um, it, it's yeah. not just about the education it's actually about the support that you've got wrapping around you yeah. and I think that's really important for not just the, the kids um, but for the teachers themselves and I look at the job that teachers have done you know if through this pandemic I mean, I've almost cried sometimes when I've heard um, Harry, when his primary school teacher, um, you know, a, a young guy, not dissimilar to you, would be having these conversations with the kids and, you know, their little voices would pipe up and they'd be talking about what they'd been doing and, you know, the poor, he had to be on 24-7 to get these kids engaged. And I don't know what grade you teach, but, you know, 10-year-old boys are hard to talk to when you're on the computer screen. Um, and yet he just showed up every day, put in the effort I, and just hats off. And I, I remember when after lockdown one and, and the school opened and it was primary school, and I remember driving Harry to school and the principal was out the front waving to all the families. And it just, I was so emotional. It was no. just, I mean, you look at that and you go, that's what community is about. And that's what yeah. um, support's about. That's, that's how you actually build amazing connections for kids families and schools yeah. yeah it's really important and um thank you for that acknowledgement about the broader teaching community i think it's i think it's so important and i it was a really it's a really tough time and i can only speak from my um perspective but i know countless other teachers that um we were on 
24 hours a day, like you said, and there was no, um, I'm privileged. I worked in two schools and the first pandemic I was in a school where we just couldn't go online. The demographic was not, it was a very multicultural and diverse school. It was really difficult to, to just, we couldn't flick a switch and go onto Google Classroom. Um, and so it was incredibly difficult. We were, there were many, many sleepless nights. And on top of that, you have, I have my own family at home at daycares Absolutely. and daycares were closed. My, I'm sitting at our dining room table now. My wife's in the other room. Our house is pretty tiny. And it was, um, it was really, really complicated. And, I, and, and I'm so grateful that people like yourselves are not only acknowledging the amazing effort that teachers have put in place, but also talking about the central role um, of mental health with teaching professionals. Because if we're not okay, your kids are not okay. Um, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to pick up on that, um, even Angus, you know, he, uh, to talk about different and challenging vulnerable populations. So mm. he's a kid um, who's nonverbal who goes to an autism school. Now those kids couldn't go to school. So you've got um, kids at home with quite yeah, complex wow. behavioral issues, trying to homeschool with, th I've got three, but you know, I'm one, one family, you know, there's thousands of these families. Yeah. And Angus's teacher, again, you know, she would check in and I'd be like, this is incredible that, you know, that, and that, that think about, well, how can we make sure that Angus can learn? Um, and so they'd be sending home activities that, you know, um, scavenger hunts and um, cooking activities and, yep. Yep. you know, and, and, and then he had a care group of, um, of young nurses who were working with the teacher to make sure. So, it was this wraparound support. So amazing. I'm just looking at going, we've got this amazing talent pool of educators who we often don't acknowledge. And, you know, I, I, again, I don't want to politicise this, but, you know, the amount of money you get paid for what you do is just it's like, it just doesn't oh, make any I, sense. I know, I, absolutely. And, and I would be lying if I hadn't, there weren't points in my life and my career where I've reconsidered is where I've asked myself, is this worth it? Um, and, and I think um, my answer is yes, <laughs> but it does, it does come at a sacrifice and come at a cost. And, and I think that parent guilt and especially teacher parent guilt is a real thing. Um, I know there were plenty of times that I was online with my class and I was talking about the importance, ironically, of well-being and engaging with your family. And I was locked in the bathroom and my kids were in the lounge room. And I, I understand the, uh, the dichotomy there, um, uh, but I think I am so... Uh, inspired and, and um, thankful for the teacher community and also an understanding that um, there is far more to schools than just academic outcomes. It's really great to see um, schools being these um, real lighthouses of, of hope and mental health. I think it's really, really important. So thank you for um, your acknowledgement as a um, as a professional, but also just as a mum, it's really great to. Uh... Oh, look, and I, and I, I, I absolutely, you know, I started as an academic without kids, but as you have your own family and you're just looking at the, mm. the challenges and the dynamics and the ups and downs of childhood into adolescence, and you know, you can academically talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> when, absolutely. When you're living it, it just, you know, and you sort of some of the things that teachers deal with, and I know the conversations, you know, the the parents sending through emails at 10 o'clock at night. I'm like, let's, let's really start to think about how we actually yeah. keep people well. And yeah. getting an email that's angry at 10 o'clock at night is not good for anyone's well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, um, this is a, a broad question, um, how do you define mental health? 
what does it what does it mean so mental health, yeah. mental health people always talk about mental health in the context of mental illness and then they think about it's anxiety it's depression it's you know it's sort of more complex alcohol drug issues and there's mental illness and that's mental ill health I think we've got to start talking about wellness and the context of mental health in terms of holistic health care. So like we think about physical health, you know, you, you, you don't stay physically fit if you eat 500 hamburgers and, and sit on your couch. Like you, you're eventually going to end up overweight and end up with a whole heap of complex mm -hmm. yes. you know, yes. diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Mental fitness is not dissimilar. So to stay mentally fit, healthy and well, you have to, like you exercise your body, you have to start to think about how you keep your brain healthy and fit. And it's it's like any other organ, you know, your brain's not divorced from your body. So we always talk about good sleep. Um, and I think it's probably the number one thing that not many people understand the impact that sleep can have on your, your mental health. Absolutely, yeah. Like as, an, as a teacher, you talked about being on 24-7. I think those sleepless nights, the waking up, the, um, the dread at 2 o'clock in the morning. So sleep's a big one. Diet and exercise. Um, so, you know, good food. Everyone, you know, people talk about this, but there's really strong evidence now about the impact of really good food, the Mediterranean diet in particular being good for your mental health. But getting out and going for a walk, getting out into the sunshine, you don't, you know, don't have to, you don't have to be sort of running a marathon, but just getting out, getting into sunshine, um, getting those endorphins going, getting out into nature, and then I think we're now sort of people are more aware of, you know, meditation and mindfulness. But you don't need to be a, you know, a, a guru of mindfulness to be mentally fit, healthy, and well. It's just sort of getting that balance right. And the number one thing after sleep, diet, and exercise is connection. Wow. Um, and being connected to people and finding purpose in life. And, you know, as, as an educator, you've talked about purpose <laughs> and people need to feel that they, um, that they have purpose in life. Um, we're on another podcast around loneliness and the increase in people who actually don't feel connected and who feel lonely um, is, a, is a real global pandemic. You know, we talk about the COVID pandemic, but it's a real issue. Um, and it's wow. not just old people, it's younger and younger um and just this lack of connection and lack of feeling that yeah. you can actually be and have purpose in life isn't it interesting that um in a world that we that in which is so hyper connected that there are still these um these needs for discussions around mental health and this uh, and an understanding that um uh that we need that one-on-one -on -one connection is that something that you have found in your research well, it's super challenging. So when uh, we had the Young and Well CRC, which was a collection of 75 organisations and it involved Google and Facebook and Twitter when Twitter eventually came on, um, the research was really interesting. It was sort of saying people who were connected in face-to-face -face environments were the ones that were far more connected in the online environment and their mental health mm. was better. Mm. Those who were isolated and um, less connected in a face-to-face -face environment were also those who are less connected in an online environment wow. and so I was always really mindful of and again coming back to my own personal experience in in vulnerable populations and disability I think it's the first time in history we've had the opportunity to connect those who are most vulnerable and yet we've got this massive challenge of people 
feeling disconnected because of the way in which social media is portrayed. So, you know, this unrealistic uh, portrayal of, of life wow. is really creating these challenges of, you know, everyone's got to look a certain way or be a certain way or act a certain way or, you know, be the, the best fittest guru of wellness. And it's just not reality. Yeah. And the yeah. big challenge is trying to get that across into, you know, as, as we start to have conversations with our kids, like you teach them to, to well, like, you know, road safety and swimming and you sort of have to teach them how to engage in the online environment in a, a really meaningful and safe way and how to have parameters around that. And it's not all bad, but it's not all good. And trying to understand that nuance is really hard for parents. And so you've got parents who go, no, I'm not, I'm not letting my kids anywhere near social media which has its own challenges because then they're disconnected in other ways. Or you've got those that go to the full extreme of I've got no parameters around it and I don't know what they're doing and I don't want to know. Yeah. And I'm actually scared of what they're doing. So that creates even more difficulties. So it's, a, it's, it's not nuanced. It's not easy and it's not simple. And it's not bad or good. It's just shades of grey. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it's also important to realise that just because we have a tendency to pick up our phone first thing in the morning or check emails or look through Instagram, whatever that may, may be. We're not, it's not because we are bad people. It's because these products are designed for our attention. And I struggle with it just as much as everyone else. Um, but I get that sense of rush when someone has liked someone that I don't know or don't particularly care about has liked a um, like something on my Facebook feed or Instagram or something's been retweeted. I understand how hard it is, but I think I've stopped feeling like I'm a terrible person because I struggle with it. Um, because these we, these things are designed for our retention. That's exactly right, and it's like any type of I don't know pre-social media. It was any type of. I remember those days. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that long ago. And that's what magazines were about. That was what entertainment was about. That was what television was about. Um, and I, I think that's just the reality of the way in which we as humans connect. Mm. We actually want to be liked. We want to be included. We want to, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, back before any of this existed, the hierarchies within schools. You had the cool kids. You had the nerdy kids. Yeah, you had yeah. The, you know, it, it just is human nature and the worst of human nature you see in social media and the best of human nature you see in social media. And I think we've got to have those conversations about how we can protect ourselves and protect our kids and not get the guilt about it, but also make sure that we protect ourselves and turn off. I mean, I've seen some horrific bullying online. Oh. Um, you know, we, we do a, a podcast called, uh, a video um podcast thing called she knows and one of the conversations was how do you keep yourself safe online and that's just a ridiculous thing to be having a conversation about but it's real and the vitriol is just horrific wow. but we're in control we can turn it off we can block people we can but sometimes you become so embedded in it, you just don't know how to do that and I think for particularly for our kids growing up that's they're the skills that they need yeah yeah I just wanted to touch briefly on that um idea of attention um, and how hard it is to be present in the moment. Right now, I, I'm talking to you and I'm really trying not to think about the shopping that I've got to do later. I'm really trying not to think of the registration that expires today that I need to pay for. 
attention is really difficult. So how on earth do we cultivate um, environments or sorry, how on earth do we, do we flex that muscle where we can, we can build our ability to pay attention? And yeah, do you no, struggle with that as well? Yeah, it's tough. It's absolutely tough. And, you know, I've been, as everybody has been guilty of, you know, sort of binge watching um, Netflix. Like, it's just so good. You know, so good. During lockdown, I fell over and fractured my shoulder. Mm. I sort of like bed was just, you know, the technology was the only connection I had. Yeah. So I think increasingly there are tools that we can use. And once you learn the skills, there's simple things like set some parameters for yourself. So turn off your computer at a certain time. Don't take your devices to bed. Um, you know, the, the tools we've got, you can set, um, set your machine up so that it puts you into night mode. Like there's, there's tools within the devices and there's tools within the, the yeah. networks that we use. Yes. But you also want to have those conversations with your family. So as a family, decide, you know, what's okay and what's not okay. Um, yeah. As a family, have a conversation about when to get out and, and just enjoy being out in you know nature. Yeah. Um, make some decisions about not taking your phone and um, and people talk about the digital detox. I think what's better and Jocelyn Brewer is brilliant at this is thinking about how you actually not detox from technology but make your life uh, more meaningful within technology. And then I think to to the very sort of practice of mindfulness, which is now. You know, I think Jan Owen talks about the fact if we could just introduce mindfulness into schools wow. and had practice of mindfulness just for a few minutes each day and taught kids yeah. that skill, yeah. that would be a great thing. And then I, I sort of go from that to our amazing um, Smiling Mind, which is an Australian, you know, startup 10 years ago. Amazing. Um, I use it every day with my students and it has been transformative. Absolutely. It's transformative. And, you know, James Tutton, stressed out executive, uh, Janie Martino, stressed out executive, and then they worked with an academic who I was his PhD supervisor, and they basically took all the science of mindfulness and put it into Smiling Mind. And you know, the CEO now, Abby Watton, is doing incredible things, and it's Amazing. just been recognised by the Australian government and funded and rolled out across schools. But I look at that and I think it's free. You know, if you yeah. can just start to use that and just once you learn the practice, it becomes far easier. I was talking to um, Dr. Craig Hassad yesterday um, about um, about some of the points that you raised and just how important it is to um, to introduce a mindfulness program, especially for young people. And his work is truly breathtaking. Um, it's really, really quite, really, really quite amazing. And he was one of the most present people I have ever interviewed. And I'm like, you are embodying this stuff. Yeah. it's not just it's not just research or it's not just an idea for you it's really important no, it's, it's his bread and butter and it's interesting you mentioned Craig because he was the other supervisor so we part bizarrely this is this would be 14 years ago that we partnered up with reachout.com yeah. which is another great resource for educators and for children and young people and we basically wanted to take the, the practice of mindfulness which Craig had you know spent years researching and many others have and I'm not a expert in it by any stretch of imagination but we wanted to take it and see if we could put it into a digital platform so that it could reach more young people and that's what the PhD was about and then that research went on to inform and Craig worked with Smiling Mind as did um, as did Kabe Monshat the, the PhD guru 
Um, and so that's become the legacy of, of that research and Smiling Mind and Reach Out, both of them, incredible resources for, for children and young people. Yeah, it, it, it's so important and really wonderful to see that, that people with expertise like yourself are, are really committed to changing that space. And, so, and if we don't get this right with our young people, um, nothing else really matters. And I think it's so, so important. Yeah, and I, I, it's not just our young people, but it's also within yeah, our workplace yes. environments. Um, but I think we've got we've got to do more than just mindfulness because that's important. But if you're in an environment that's not safe, it doesn't matter how much mindfulness you practice, yeah. you're not going to feel psychologically well. And that's another big passion of mine. You know, how do you actually create safe workplaces so that people can go to work and not be burnt out, not be yeah. damaged by their work environment? Yep. So uh, in terms of that, um, how do we create or begin to create work, workspaces that are um, that that embody such elements of psychological safety? So I mean, it's such a good question. And the answer is um, increasingly we're seeing more psychological claims. So people are not feeling safe within their workforce. So I think it, it, it there's a lot of research around it, but if you don't have a great leader, if you don't have executives who practice what they preach, if you don't feel that you can speak up, um, and again, there's a group that I'm doing some work for, Clarity Plus, this speak up culture, this not accepting bad behaviour, this sense of being able to say, actually, that's not okay, then you're not going to have psychologically safe workplaces. So, there's things, you know, increasingly we're saying it's not just about stigma, it's about the job design it's about job crafting it's about mm. the design of the building um, it's about yeah. how you create environments um, you know there's a whole research around world buildings now which yeah. is what does it look like to actually come into a work environment you know much like the, the occupational health and safety stuff done in construction industry back in the 50s 60s and 70s you know you wouldn't send someone into uh, industry now without a harness, without safety equipment. Um, you wouldn't send people into mines without, you know, sort of um, looking to reduce exposure to toxic environments. Yeah. Now we've got different workplaces. They're very much um, about people. And we've got big challenges around how you make sure that you actually keep people safe. Wow. Um, and what does that look like from a workplace wellbeing perspective? Um, yeah. United Project, another um, incredible sort of collective of, of leaders coming together. I think we've got to show what does it look like to be a great leader? What does it look like to create great workplaces where people do feel safe and where they can speak up? And then not just sign a pledge to say, yeah, we're psychologically safe as a workplace, but actually take the action yeah. to put yeah. into play the things that keep people safe and to feel comfortable to not get it right and to actually take on board whether it's you know the the cleaner at the school or whether it's the brand new first year teacher or whether it's the principal everyone has to be involved in creating that safe work environment wow it's so important and jane there's so many there's so many questions i have about that but i, I do want to be um respectful of your time and as i said i'll put all of the links to the resources and things that you talked about in the show notes so people can um do their own research. Um, I, I would love to spend a few moments uh, talking about Together AI. Uh, it's an incredible platform. Um, I 
sorry, you mentioned that you moved uh, into tech. Was that a was that a scary thing? Was that a, a new ground for you or? So bizarrely, reachout.com was started in 1997 in Australia by a guy called Jack Heath. And Jack was working with uh, the Prime Minister at the time. Uh, he was the political advisor and they were doing a, I don't know, an interview. And they were talking about how technology could open up the financial markets. You know, this is 1997. Yeah. And Jack had just lost his um, cousin, I think it was, to... Um, suicide in, in a regional community. And Jack asked the question, um, what if we could use technology for good? Wow. And wow. that went from Jack Heath with an idea to Jack Heath getting funded by Microsoft, so Gilliam and Grant back in the day. <laughs> Gilly's now the Cyber Safety Commissioner. Um, Daniel Petrie back in the day, he's now probably one of Australia's leading lights, entrepreneurs, um, venture capitalist funds, social enterprise. And so it was really Jack that opened my eyes to the role of tech. And the first project we funded at Beyond Blue was reachout.com. And it was a regional tour. So literally in a bus, they got in the bus, and they went out to each of the regional communities, took photos, loaded them up onto this website. And from there, it just progressed and it just became, you know, Australia's been magnificent in its innovation so we had the first online cognitive behavioral therapy wow. gym, which came out of helen christensen's work at anu we've just been absolutely punching above our weight in terms of the role of technology my biggest frustration was we could never get it embedded within um not just clinical care but within systems so I was always obsessed with the fact that if you could go to scale, you could actually drive real change, but there was so much pushback and this need to do face-to-face. -face. And I've always been in the mindset, you need both. And then we had the pandemic and all of a sudden, oh, wow, there's this new technology. I'm like, it's not freaking new. It's been around for- We've 20, been talking about this for years. plus yes. years. Yeah. And now the pandemic shone the big shiny spotlight on the fact that, oh, we need to actually take things online and we, we were not ready for it, but we just had to do it. And so I just think there's so much amazing technology out there. And so together AI, coming back to keeping pace with tech, it's all about artificial intelligence, but artificial intelligence from a human centered perspective. So how do you actually use the technology to ensure that families can have the right conversations at the right time? Yeah, it's really- we to do it with Google and you know we did living labs and we set it up but it was a decade ago the technology wasn't quite ready and I think what we now got with Together AI is building out this amazing technology but the community of families wow. will make it absolutely be um, I think fundamental in changing the conversations that people have. Wow that's and really that's tough. Yeah but it's tough having these conversations you know how do you have a conversation and when do you have a conversation with your kid about pornography, for example, or what role is it of the school to have the conversation around gender diversity or LGBTIQ plus versus the parent? And how do you actually get these conversations happening at the right time so it's not all the responsibility of teachers? Because mm. that's not cooler either. Like yeah. you can't really you can't expect the teachers to, yeah. you know, do everything. So together I is really about how you support developmentally 
these conversations and how you help your kids to open up and have conversations because yeah. I certainly know you know with little kids and they'll just tell you everything because they're little and they just you know you're the center of their universe and they love you and they trust you and they want you to be and wrap your arms around them and care for them but as they start to get a bit older and I'm seeing this with Holly who's now about almost turning 13 and Harry who's 11 you know it those conversations get tougher and harder yeah yeah how um just a, just some parenting advice because my kids are quite little and um, but at some point I'll probably need to find you and say how on earth do I have this conversation with my teenage girl um but how do you do that um practically in your own family do you um do you have time where you're sitting around the dinner table do you um do you talk in the car like how do you begin to uh, set the foundations for those conversations in your family look it's and it's about finding those it's not it's about informal conversations and I find with Harry you know bike riding like it's a bizarre thing you're riding your bike and you're having a conversation and he's behind me or he's in front of me and you're sort of having a chat um the car Sarah Glover who's an educator who was just incredible um she was one of the first educators I worked with on the Gatehouse Project she used to say the opportune time to have a conversation is when the kids come home from school um, and they'll blurt something out or when you're in the car and you're you're sort of driving and they're sitting next to you or in the back seat and I've had some hilarious conversations with my kids as I've been driving and a song will come on the radio and I'll be talking about you know one I met a girl right and it was a song that I grew up with and I said to Holly, um, uh, what would you do if, no, it was something about same-sex attraction. And she said, mum, I'm 11. (laughs) But it's those conversations that I think taking the time, and I do think sitting down at the dinner table um, and having a conversation while you're cooking. So we, in lockdown, just um, ended up getting one of the um, food packages delivered. And you know, we prepared dinner together, you'd be having conversations, but it wasn't a formal thing. It was just having a chat. Um, and then there are times where you've got to have a more, you know, challenging conversation. And that's where I think something like a Together AI or really? you know, if, you're, if you're concerned about cyber safety, jumping on a website, reachout.com's great. Um, Amazing. You know, there's, there's lots of, there's massive amounts of resource, yeah. but it's just hard to navigate for parents. And I think trying to bring it all into one space where, you don't have to navigate it. You've just got it at your fingertips and it's about learning the skills becomes so important. Yeah, it's great to know that there are some amazing resources out there because parenting is hard. It's really yeah. hard. And <laughs> there's, no, there's no book. <laughs> no, there's no book. And and I think I, I look back at my, it's definitely given me grace for my own parents because I they were about the age that I am that I had my my children and like, they had no idea what they were doing yeah. and it gives me a bit of uh it gives me a bit of hope to go okay all right there's a few things that we've got right here and, and I know for our girls we've got a, a little like a, a breakfast bar at the at the kitchen and and even just this year we've started making sure that we we've limited the use of that and we've just been sitting down at our lovely large dining table every night and looking at each other's eyes and saying how was your day um yeah. what's one thing you enjoyed and our, yeah. our four-year-old um she plays this game called um, "My What's Your Favorite Thing," and so she she has to go first. But she will tell us what her favorite thing was for the day, and then she'll ask our two year old who says something like biscuits or something, something completely irrelevant. But it's really it's been really nice to sit down 
talk, have a conversation and look at each other's eyes and say, I love you or I'm proud of you. And it's been really wonderful to do that. Yeah. And look, and I think this is a big challenge. I mean, how do you translate all of that wonderful research? So what you're talking about is the research that comes out of the gratitude research mm. um, out of Stanford Uni. Lots of parents don't know that stuff. Um, yeah. And I particularly, you know, you really feel for those families who are more vulnerable, who've cycles of poverty or yeah, cycles of domestic violence where they just don't, they haven't had, they haven't had anyone to learn from and so yeah. it's just been survival yeah it's survival mode and so the real opportunity I think is how do we reach those who are most vulnerable and break those cycles of poverty Absolutely. so that actually or break those cycles of violence um Absolutely. and those little things like having the conversation what are you grateful for or what do you you know what what have you enjoyed today um yeah. or who have you chatted to or but even having the hard conversations about you know hang on a minute <laughs> things have gone wrong today or yeah. um, that's also super, super important. So one of the things that we try to do is uh, say sorry quickly and often. Um, and so it's, look, and this is something my beautiful wife has, has really um, embedded into our household is that we can all have times that we lose it or we get cranky or we're tired, but as long as we say sorry and um, there's a, we're addicted to Frozen at the moment and there's a song yeah. where it talks about the next right thing. And so we always talk about that. Okay, so say my little one has just hit my her sister, and so we'll say, "What's the next right thing?" The next right thing could be to say sorry and give her a cuddle. And I, I'm so grateful um, to get to define that culture within my own home. And I'm also very aware that it is a privileged position because my wife and I both work. We both have really great, stable, secure jobs. We have a home. We have a um, we have things that we're passionate about. And as you go back to your point, I'm very aware that that is a really privileged position to be in, um, to be able to talk about wellbeing as opposed to dad's going out to do night shift because we yeah. might have had the bills. Um, and so um, I do want to be uh, respectful um, of your time, uh, Jane. So just a couple more questions, um, if you don't mind. Your work is endlessly fascinating. There's so many things I could ask you. Um, and we've talked a little bit about this, um, but what do you think are some of the long-term effects of this ongoing pandemic on mental health? And are you confident that um, we are in a position as a society to, to support people through this? That's it, a broad question, I'm sorry. And it's a hard, so, yeah. so it's a hard question. Um, and so what we're seeing and people are now talking about it, the pandemic's being horrendous, obviously, from a physical health perspective and, Long COVID's a real thing and the, um, the illness that comes from COVID is, is just catastrophic. Yeah. The impact on our workforce has been catastrophic, healthcare workers, first responders, educators, Gosh. people losing their jobs, et cetera, et cetera. The mental health challenges, and there's uh, there's an index out of the United States called Total Brain, um, and they are seeing what they're calling mini PTSD. So we know, we know that uncertainty breeds anxiety and, and you can see it play out in your own family, you can see it play out in other families, you can see it playing out across, um, across social media and into work environments. And so we've got a massive epidemic of poor mental health, which we had pre the pandemic. Yeah. So we've got it, I think, 
there's never going to be enough services. And this is the real, this is, I mean, people calling for more services. I'm like, we just, we just do not have enough psychologists. There's no doubt about it. And I know in Victoria, we just ran out of psychologists. I had three families desperate for care and we couldn't get them in. We ended up going to a girlfriend in Byron Bay and, you know, she provided um, online care. So I think we absolutely need a skilled workforce. There's no doubt about that. But we can't just keep focusing on waiting until people become unwell. We've actually got to really focus on preventative healthcare yeah. Yeah. and well-being support. So how do you keep people well? How do you keep people connected? How do you stop um, poor mental health? And if we don't focus on that, we're just going to constantly be putting the Band-Aid on. And that's what it feels like at the moment. So... I feel super optimistic working with amazing startups like the Together AI guys and the Clarity Pluses and the Swiss Eights and, you know, apply the Positive Psychology Learning Institute, you know, Paula Robinson's work's amazing. But I also feel desperate at the thought that we're just going to continue going down the path of putting more money into clinical care and that's just not the solution. Um, We need high quality, exceptional clinical care but we also need to invest in how do we promote mental health and well-being, and yeah. we just haven't got that balance right. So yeah. it it drives me insane thinking about all of these years of great work in public health, and we're still not focusing on prevention mm. because it's hard to get a politician to think about preventative healthcare and investing in that because it's easier to open a headspace or it's easier to say let's put together more mental health services because it's tangible it's not as easy to say let's invest in the promotion of good mental health Um, we might not see the impact of that for years and that is outside of an election cycle yep and i don't know the answer to it because every every politician i speak to says yeah i get it it's important And it's super important. I mean, Fiona Patton here in Victoria, you know, her focus has been on loneliness. Her focus has been on really hard topics. But to get elected, (laughs) they're not, they're not vote getters. They're just Mm. not. Um, And so I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer. I think the private sector is stepping up. So the investment coming from VC, from industry, and again, the catch up with a girlfriend today, um, we were talking about the role of leaders and, not the same voices saying the same thing, but actually a new leadership group that comes through and says, mm. there's going to be younger people as well, um, coming through and saying, actually, we need a different approach. And we actually need industry working with the startup community and, and really starting to say, actually, what does this look like and how do we actually change the dial on it? Because otherwise we're just going to still be doing the same thing in another five years and a decade on and I'll, I'll be old and frustrated. And <laughs> I, will be, I will be too, so... Um, uh, Jane, just in um, just in closing, there's a uh, there's a whole uh, cohort of teachers next week that are about to go back and stand in front of their um, stand in front of their class, and for the first time um, for many of us, um, what advice would you give um, to them about the importance of the role that they have, um, and also how to create these environments that are built on well-being and promoting mental health? So I think the first thing I'd say is look after your own mental health and um, get, you know, so I know I did the toolbox talk for the Apple Education Series. Um, 
that's available um, and absolutely I'm happy for, to share that widely because I think it's really about how do you how do you look after your own mental health to then allow you to do the incredible job that you do which is support the school community and the families that you work with and not being too hard on yourself um, and I, I think again the leadership role of you know, the principal right through to the, the executive and then the school environment itself. Um, and parents have a role to play in this as well. So trying not to be, you know, too aggressive, too angry, too anything, but really being a lot kinder to each other and a lot, um, a lot more caring. And I know we talk about care and connection and support, but they are so critical to well-being. Amazing. Um, and, you know, I think, I think, I mean, I, I watch teachers and I see teachers and I see the way the teachers interact with my kids. There's a lot of joy from kids as well. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of joy. And um, I think capturing that joy and, and creating spaces where it's not just about the academic outcome, it's important, but it's actually about the, mm -hmm. the nurture that you provide and the care that you provide and the compassion that you bring to your jobs. Um, Amazing. You need to do that for yourself. <laughs> Amazing. That, that's great advice. Um, thank you. And a final question, where can people find out more about you and, and follow your amazing work? There's so much of it. What's a good connection point? Oh, look, LinkedIn is my, um, mm -hmm. I probably, you know, I sort of post a lot and I mentioned the um, webinars and the podcasts that we're doing with She Knows and Clarity Plus and, but probably LinkedIn. So Jane M. Burns, um, I do a little bit on social media or Instagram, but that's probably more personal. Uh, and I've got a blog called Loving Angus. If anyone's interested in uh, in being a parent to a kid with a disability and some of the uh, interesting, challenging um, and not so perfect moments of life as a mum, that's that's worth a read. Yeah, it, it's, it is a beautiful read. Um, it's really lovely and it's, it's incredibly honest and raw, um, but I think it also gives hope to so many that um, our lives are not always, they don't always fit perfectly in the little boxes. It's some days are, are challenging and tough. And thank you for sharing the story um, of your beautiful son with so many. It's, it's, it's a really, it's a really great read. I'd encourage people to check it out. Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't written it for a while because it was very much cathartic. And I think again, coming back to some of the things that help, I think writing, if you're, if you're a writer and you enjoy it, even if you have your own private diary, um, it can mm. be, for me, I, I really grappled with having a kid with such a severe disability. And I was, you know, I was not, I was absolutely no way the perfect mother and I'm still not. Um, but, you know, taking that time out to actually think about, well, what can I, what can I take away from this really challenging? Yeah. It was, he was super hard, but he's, he's, he's a beautiful kid now. Yeah. Um, and he's an, he's a funny kid. And I think, you know, scratch the surface and every, anyone who parents, every kid has its, have, have their challenges. Um, and no one in this world is perfect and anyone who, who thinks they are is, is delusional yeah that's uh, that's so true and what a wonderful uh, point to end on um, uh, Professor Jane Burns thank you so much for your time it's a privilege to talk to you and, and thank you for all of the good that you are doing in our world I really appreciate it yeah and thanks for the chat it's been great thank you
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.